Our scripture this morning comes from uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 10, 10 to 17. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leaders said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amongst our children, compassion can be a wavering virtue. Okay, a wavering virtue. Our girls are usually very sweet. They're usually really, you know, eager, ready to help. But their sympathetic imagination sometimes fails to translate into tangible action. Their kindness, which we know is in there, Uh, seems to fade in or out depending on the situation. For example, if dessert depends on their rooms being clean, they display remarkable teamwork. They work together like crazy. It's so good. They divide the labor to get every toy or piece of clothing picked up as quickly as possible. But if we ask just one of them to help their sister make their bed or clean up a mess that isn't their own, usually made by their little brother, or do something that slightly inconveniences their, currently, their current plans, their empathy tends to run dry. <laughs> if they've had a long day or already cleaned up their own mess, their concern for the misfortune of their siblings kind of drops off the chart. It goes to non-existent. It's like it's not even there. Rather than imagining how they might feel were they in a similar situation, how deeply they would want help or how frustrating it would be to take on that task by themselves, they make excuses to avoid lending a hand. You've probably heard this if you've had any interaction with children in your life. The ones that we hear most often revolve around them being too tired. I'm too tired to do this, or I'm too busy. I'm already doing something else. But the one we hear the most is sort of this universal rallying cry of children's injustice. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> right? Everybody knows that we've heard that from kids. Sadly, most of us recognize these excuses because we still use some of them in our own lives today. If someone in our family, in our household, our husband or wife asks us to help, sometimes we're like, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of set. And if it's a lot, then we say, well, that's not fair. I've, you know, I've not, they've done not enough and I've done too much. But we do use them when it comes to extending actual compassion as well. These same excuses. Now, I'm not saying we're never compassionate or we always avoid uh, helping others, but we've all witnessed 
We have all witnessed acts of mercy and kindness in this world, often in profound, life-changing ways. We know that we can practice compassion. We know how to love other people. This church has practiced compassion for years. Our commitment to helping others proves extending mercy to those in need is not something that's completely foreign to us. But often our best efforts still fall short of what Jesus desires. Because extending compassion to real people in real ways isn't easy. When we encounter someone in need, our initial response is often to look the other way. It's easy to ignore the person on the street or walk away from the person overwhelmed at work. It's easier to dodge the person who is having some kind of emotional crisis in the hallway, uh, at school, or at a family gathering. It's easy to look overlook the signs of distress in friends and family. Even worse, we're quick to excuse ourselves from helping at all. We proclaim that we don't have the resources or the time or that we don't know what to say or do, that we're not trained for that kind of help. We say we must be careful about our overextending ourselves or being taken in. We're commanded to extend compassion to others, but our heart sometimes, maybe a lot of the times, seems to malfunction. We don't love in the way Jesus loves us, nor do we see every person we meet as he would see them. When Jesus heals a woman with a disabling spirit, however, we see how God has always extended compassion to his children and desires us to do the same. We see this throughout our scripture, just like Jane was saying. In Exodus and Leviticus, Yahweh instructs his people in the law to take care of people who need help, to take care specifically of the widow and orphan and relieve the burden of those in need whenever possible. There are these uh, um, uh, laws, they say, at the end of the harvest, leave some things, anything that falls on the ground, just leave it for people who need it. The Hebrew words for compassion reflect how this sympathy for others leads to action. The people of God are commanded not just to comfort and console, but relieve the burdens of physical and emotional and spiritual distress. When God reveals himself to Moses, he describes himself in exactly that way. He uses a word that reflects deep emotion that leads to acts of selfless Service When he says, uh, I am the Lord, merciful and kind, he's saying, I extend compassion all the time. The moral expectation for the people of God, however, grows from the spiritual reality of encountering that merciful God in their own life. Their Lord expected his children would be compassionate because they had already experienced compassion in their own lives. They had received the mercy of God in their own lives. Having known God's love, his children would be prepared to recognize that same need in everyone still crushed by the broken world, by a broken world overcome with sin and evil. The command for this radical sympathy increases when Jesus begins teaching about the kingdom of God and the gospels, literally defined as being moved in the innermost Parts as having a gut-wrenching experience, the compassion of Jesus recognizes the helpless condition of God's children and combines it with God's desire to save them no matter what. 
Our Lord desires to rescue his children, even if it means dying on their behalf. Uh, Jesus makes this command even more explicit for his followers when he redefines the concept of neighbor. Uh, Scholar Dale Allison said that Jesus does not contradict Leviticus 19.18, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but goes beyond it. The Pentateuch understands neighbor as fellow Israelite, but Jesus gives neighbor its broadest definition. We see that in the parable of um, of the Good Samaritan. Right? Anybody who you come across who is in need is your neighbor. Jesus desires his disciples are known not just for their compassion to family and friends, but to everybody they meet, even their enemies, which was unique in that time, and it's frankly still unique today. He wants them to be known by their love, and that love has to have the same depth and width as his own. Healing the woman in the synagogue provides us a model for practicing compassion in our own lives in three ways, because Jesus does three things when he encounters this woman. First, Jesus affirms the woman's value as a child of God. Sadly, people in that time typically equated disease and physical brokenness with spiritual punishment, assuming that the suffering someone was experiencing was a sign Uh, of the wrath of the gods, or Yahweh himself, that Yahweh had turned away from this person for some uh, undisclosed reason. This woman's unexplained illness likely brought social isolation from the community, maybe even her family. Her entire life, almost two decades, was bound to this disease. Her body and soul had been broken. Pushed into the background, everybody who had come to hear this young rabbi speak likely ignored her. They knew that she was this disabled woman who struggled in their community, but they had not really done much for her over the past two decades. They didn't see her, but Jesus did. Jesus could see the woman hidden underneath the suffering. He saw the hurt that she carried and felt every emotion Uh, that weighed upon her heart. Notice the woman here never reaches out to Jesus or asks to be healed. 18 years might have convinced her that healing was out of reach. But Jesus sees her as one of his own. She needed help and he healed her, allowing her to stand again. Hebrews 4.15 declares, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Knowing what it means to be human, Jesus meets his children's deepest frustrations with his eternal grace and love. He sees our deepest hurt. He sees how we have been crushed by the world, how we have been bent over by our own suffering. And he moves to heal us too. In the Christian life, we are equally called to see other people in the same way. The person that cuts in front of us in traffic, the family member that annoys you, the friend that lets you down. All of them have been made for a specific purpose by the Lord of all creation, and they deserve our respect and wonder and, when necessary, our help. Every person we meet is likely carrying some hidden burden. Everyone is carrying some hidden burden. 
fighting some quiet battle, enduring the darkness of some deep valley. We might not know exactly what those are, but when we see them, like Jesus sees this woman, we are recognizing that they matter. (laughs) Simone Weil, the uh, French philosopher and mystic, wrote, the love of our neighbor in all its fullness simply means being able to say to them, what are you going through? That question is a recognition that the sufferer exists, not only as a unity and a collection or a specimen from the social category labeled unfortunate, but as a man or woman exactly like us, who was one day stamped with a special mark by affliction. Christ values every person we have ever met so deeply he left heaven to claim them as his child. They matter to God. Everyone we meet matters to God, even the people that frustrate us. And so they have to matter to us too. Scott McKnight uh, writes uh, in his book, uh, churches that follow Jesus don't simply take up a cause for one specific group. They develop a culture, a community in which they hear cries, the cries of all the distressed and all the wounded and respond with compassion. In this culture of compassion, people will not be made to feel invisible. They will be seen and heard. Second, Jesus does something else. He responds proactively and practically extends compassion. So in the middle of his teaching, he was teaching in a synagogue, which is typically what young rabbis would do. Jesus notices the woman enter, recognizes her distress, and invites her forward to be healed. His grace here was not passive or even reactive, uh, but actively moved toward this woman to heal and restore. Reformer uh, Willemus Abrekel, that's his name, you can look it up, Wilhelmus Abrekel, uh, wrote that, Read only the history of Jesus' life, the Gospels, and you will perceive that all his footsteps were nothing but mercy. Time and time again, you will read Jesus being moved with compassion. He was not merely moved, however, but his compassion culminated in deeds. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He gave the oppressed their dead again and traversed the entire country doing good. He has left us an example so that we would follow in his footsteps. Jesus provides grace to this woman, not just with words, but his touch. Embodying what the Jewish people had long desired, that their God might be present among them, that he might walk with them as he once did with humanity in the garden. Jesus lays his hands on her. For a woman who has been ostracized, for one who has been isolated, who has been alone for so long, imagine what those hands felt like. And Jesus, a loving God, touches broken humanity to heal, to save, and to make new. His touch makes straight what was broken, allowing her to stand again, representing on a physical level what Jesus does for all of us on a spiritual one. John Calvin wrote, in this miracle as well in others, Christ exhibited a proof both of his power and of his grace. For in this manner, he testified that he had come for the purpose of granting relief to the wretched. If you go back and read our, uh, our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 61, 
there is a prophecy. That is what the Messiah has come to do, to, to, to lift up the burdens of those who are crushed. We, too, are called to extend compassion proactively and practically in ways uh, to anybody that we might meet. In the New Testament, uh, compassion is always used as a verb and never a noun. Theologian Andrew Purvis writes that compassion means getting involved in another's life for healing and wholeness. The logic of compassion moves from a deep feeling, you feel it in your gut, in your bones, for another who is suffering to a ministering work of some kind. In every instance where Jesus is said to have felt compassion, it is also reported that he engaged in a subsequent act of ministry and mercy. When Jesus moves in and through us, our compassion will mature from from feeling into action, just like Jesus does here. We are not called to help only from a distance, but stand next to, maybe stand into, step into the lives of, of those who suffer. When we walk alongside those who need help and we invest in the people who suffer and show up beside them, we uniquely show them the love of our good God. Finally, Jesus frees us to help right away. When Jesus saw the woman suffering, he immediately moved to relieve her pain, despite it being the Sabbath when all work was strictly prohibited. The compassion of God, which we are called to model, is always ready to help at once. William Barclay writes, the urgency we see in Jesus here makes it clear that it is not God's will that any human being should suffer one moment longer than is absolutely necessary. The Jewish law was that it was perfectly legal to help someone on the Sabbath who was in actual danger of his life. If Jesus had postponed the healing of this woman until the, until the next day, no one would have criticized him. But he insisted that suffering must not be allowed to continue until tomorrow if it could be helped today. When Jesus heals her, he shows that God's grace never runs dry and that God is always moving to remove every chain of bondage When he compares this healing to uh, leading an ox or donkey to water, the law provided ample precedent for taking care of animals in emergencies on the Sabbath. So if there was an animal, a cattle, um, something on your farm, uh, if they were in danger, you could save them. There's actually parts of the law that says you you can do this. So Jesus here uses a lesser to greater argument to show how much more God's people should care for those in need. The parallel makes more sense in the original language. You kind of get a sense of it in the English. But Luke uses similar phrasing to describe both untying cattle and releasing this woman from the bondage of her disease. Her rescue points to the deeper purpose, however, uh, of salvation for every believer. In Jesus, we are not just saved from sin and the consequence of sin, death. We are not just delivered from evil. We are saved from the consequence of sin in order to reflect the same compassion we know in Jesus. We are saved from our sin so we might be free to love like he loves. We are saved from so that we might be free too. 
Our God frees us from our brokenness so we might love others in this broken world whenever we see them. We are called to love like Jesus, not tomorrow or the next day or when we feel ready or when we feel prepared, but now. Our God not only looks at us and saves us with compassion, he opens the door for us to do the same. And he comes and lives in us so that we might be able to love like him. As the Holy Spirit settles in our hearts, we take on the same urgency Jesus shows to the woman here. We inherit his awareness of those who are still suffering. Our eyes are open and we start to see people who are struggling. We inherit his tender touch for those who need it. We inherit a desire to to reach out and help and touch. And we inherit his readiness to move toward the lost, to help those still carrying a weight that crushes their soul. In his first letter, John uh, distills this new life we receive in Jesus with these words, we love because he first loved us. So put it another way, Jesus frees us to love so we can love like he loves. The response of the people to the compassion Jesus shows, confirms that humanity was made to love in this way. What was their response? They weren't all frustrated. They didn't try to stone him. The, the Pharisees, the people uh, in charge of the temple, they were frustrated. They were embarrassed. But the people were delighted with the wonderful things that he was doing. The people saw him extend kindness and they rejoiced. They praised God for that kind of mercy, for that kind of compassion. That is the kind of community that God calls this church to be. That is the kind of people that God calls all of us to be, to extend compassion, to see the hurt of other people and to walk alongside them. So let us love like he loves, not tomorrow, but today, so that no one will be forgotten, and we all might rejoice in his love. Hallelujah. Amen.